good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, as we approach this particular text, there are a couple of really important points that we want to deal with today. Uh, the first point is understanding what's unfolding in the nation of Nineveh. You know, we've walked through this story. I just want to give perhaps a brief recap of the things that have occurred. Jonah has been swallowed alive. I would ultimately say that he has died, that he has descended all the way into Sheol. And now he has arisen. And as he has arisen, as he has come back from the dead, and as he has made his way into Nineveh, he has come making a proclamation. And this proclamation is one that I don't think any of us would think amidst hearing this proclamation. This is excellent news. This is a means of the mercy of God coming to us. And the reason I bring that up is because the proclamation that Jonah is making over the people of Nineveh is yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. There really doesn't seem to be much grace in that statement, does there? There doesn't seem to be a whole bunch of mercy in the proclamation that it's really, it's going to be 40 days and in 40 days Nineveh will be overturned. And by overturned, it means that it will be wiped off the face of the planet. It will be completely and totally obliterated. There will be nothing left of Nineveh. And in this proclamation, the word of God goes out. And what I really want to deal with this morning is the conquest of God among the nations. When we come to this particular passage, we see something that is rather unique. We see God make war. And the way that he makes war is incredibly distinct from all other wars that will ever be waged. And it's interesting that even amidst this, you think about the position that the Ninevites were actually in and even their conflict with Israel. Israel was a nation that was strong, as strong as it's ever been, essentially in the days of, uh, of the book of Jonah. And Nineveh was a nation underfoot. If there was ever a time for God to wield the actual sword, for him to wield steel against a nation, to crush it and to conquer it, it was perhaps in this moment. And yet what we find is not God sending the nation of Israel for the sake of a, a conquest, a conquering of the nation by blade, horse, and chariot. Instead, we see him send a single man. And in this sending of a single man, he goes forth and he brings perhaps the greatest weapon of war that has ever been forged in our world. This morning, we want to deal with the word of the Lord. We want to deal with the word of the Lord. We want to deal ultimately with it as a weapon. We want to deal with it as what it does in the life of an individual. And we ultimately want to deal with the judgment that it brings. And lastly, the bomb that it makes constant reference to. And so if you have your Bible, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Now let's start in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you to. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. Lord, we thank you that even now as we study the word that came to Nineveh, we are reminded of the word that has come to us. Lord, not only the written word that we come to, that we read, that is indeed the only, the only sufficient rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Lord, but we come knowing that this word brings us to see and to behold the living word. And so, Father, I ask you to help us this morning as you wound us. Lord, would you remind us of the all-sufficiency of Christ, the balm that he is that is all healing. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning, which we'll come to really at the end of the sermon, is it is by God's kindness that he leads us to repentance. It is by God's kindness that he leads us to repentance. And the way that I want to walk through this is I really want to do a bit of an examination of what occurred in the nation of Nineveh as Jonah walked in the door, essentially walked throughout the nation with this proclamation of yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. I want us to examine really what is the weapon of war that Jonah brings because, friends, as I've already made reference, it is a weapon of war unlike any other weapon that is here or ever will be formed. It is the weapon of the Word of God. Because I want you to see, just look at verse 6, and in verse 6, verse 1, or the first couple of words in verse 6, it says, The Word reached the king of Nineveh. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And if we could do just a a brief moment of introspection of what's occurred in Nineveh over the last three days. Essentially what's occurred is a man, a single man, has walked through the single most violent city that existed in this day pronouncing judgment. Genuinely, I'm still trying to figure out why Jonah lives past the gate of Nineveh as he's making this proclamation. Why is it that a single man can walk through the gates and make this great proclamation of judgment, of an absolute wrathful moment of God completely wiping them off of the planet? How is it that he enters in? How is it that he comes? And this word not only reaches each soul that, he, that, he, that comes under his voice, but it even makes its way to the king of Nineveh. How is it that this man comes in and he stands and essentially what we see is a whole nation largely be overturned by the word of God and brought to repentance? It's because it is not about the man that carries the message. It is not about the man. It's not about his eloquence. It's not about anything other than the, than the objective reality that the word of God is indeed the greatest weapon ever formed. And I really want to do a brief examination of this because when we think about the word of the Lord, I am convinced that we often come to it and we think it really dead. We don't really believe that it is living and active, or as the writer of Hebrews says, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We believe it to be strong. We believe it to have some type of merit, some way to communicate to us how we can live a godly life here below. But really, do we really believe it a weapon? Do we believe it mighty? And Jonah, even amidst all of his rebellion, as he walks through Nineveh, it seems as though he genuinely is convinced that he is walking in with the greatest weapon that has ever been formed. There seems to be great boldness as he proclaims this message of judgment. Why is he bold? Why is he willing to walk in and say, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned? Well, the answer is rather simple. The first point is that the the word of the Lord carried the Lord's authority. Have you ever thought about how foolish it is that a man would stand up here and preach to you? What authority is in any individual's mouth? 
Friends, the reason there's any confidence as we come to the scriptures is because the word of the Lord has a unique authority about it. It's not about me coming in and reading it or exegeting it or anything like that. It possesses authority in and of itself. That is an objective reality. And so what we see Jonah doing is resting in the authority that God himself has as he sends out that word. We often forget that when we come to the scriptures, we are not only trusting that God has revealed something, but we are trusting that God is true. That not only is God true, but the authority that he has placed in his word is a genuine and actual authority that it will accomplish the purpose that he set out for it. When we consider the word of the Lord going out, the first thing that we must do is rest in the giver of that word. If we know him, if we know that he is true, that he is incapable of lying and deceit, that not only that, but the word that he has given will actually accomplish the purpose that he's given. I mean, really that promise is not that strong unless we know who the God who promised it is. He's gonna cast judgment and bring salvation. The first thing that we must conclude is that this God must then be all powerful. We must know the God of the scriptures. We must know him so that we can rest in the authority that he's given us in the proclamation of the word of God. For us to see it and to rejoice in it, in its power, in its might, in the weaponry that he has given us for the tasks at hand, we must know the God that it testifies to. And so Jonah walks in with great authority, trusting in the word of the Lord because he knows the Lord of the word. He knows the God who authored it. He knows that the words that were placed in his mouth are not his own. He knows that 40 days in Nineveh will be overturned is not originating in his own heart and mind. It is originating in the mind of God that he is indeed his prophet. And as he goes forth making this pronouncement, he can go forth with great authority. Not because Jonah is authoritative. As a matter of fact, if anything that the book of Jonah has done up until this point is probably be like, Jonah's really not that great. But his God is still his God. He is still mighty. He is still authoritative. He is still always going to bring to fruition all that he decreed. Not only do we see that the Lord's word carried his authority, we also see that this particular word brought judgment. It was, in essence, a pronouncement of wrath. Have you ever been stung by the scriptures as you come to it? You read through the pages and you think to yourself, it wounds me. And perhaps it is that even as you read, you think, I must turn the page. I must move forward. I must progress in the scriptures because this particular moment is painful and it wounds deeply, friends. That's what the word of God does. The word of God does indeed wound and it is necessary that we be wounded. Because in our wounds, we see that there is genuinely a position that we have before God that demands that he wound us, that demands that cup of wrath that we have spoken of multiple times. If there's anything that God actually has to have, has to execute, it's justice. When we come to the scriptures and we are wounded, when there's judgment forecast, we should genuinely see that and weep. I am under his wrath. The judgment of God rests on me. And when Jonah brings this word, it is judgment. It genuinely is. Though we know the end of the story, though we know that Nineveh will repent and God will relent from the disaster that he promised, we must know that this word is indeed judgment. Everyone in Nineveh would have tasted this and said, we are under the wrath of God. It brings judgment. 
When the word of the Lord goes out, it brings great judgment. And it is a powerful, powerful judgment that is forecast. But what is most interesting, and I think perhaps the thing of the greatest confidence that we can have in the Christian life, is that the word of the Lord genuinely pierced this particular nation. But the way that it does it is so intriguing to me. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. So as Jonah is making his way through Nineveh, this great city, And he's making this pronouncement of judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Every pronouncement, God wields the weapon of his word and slices these people to the heart. That not only does he slice them to the heart, this simple pronouncement of judgment is what pierces them to such a degree that they not only hear and heed the warning, but they believe in the God who has sent it. I mean, this is not... Figurative language, what we find in verse 5, as this pronouncement goes forth, the people genuinely do believe God. And it's only under this proclamation of judgment. And naturally then, they are cut to the heart. And as they are cut to the heart, all of these fruits that flow from belief begin to come. And we'll look at those here in a moment. But what I think is most encouraging for us is, friends, I'm not sure if you realize But the saint of God should always be on conquest. The purpose of the Great Commission is that we go forth essentially fulfilling the original command that God gave to man to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What is it that we do in the Great Commission of God? As as Jonah went through Nineveh proclaiming, yet 40 days, yet shall it be overturned, we as saints of God must wield the word and cry out, believe, repent, and believe the gospel. It is the means of conquest among the nations. And may I simply argue that if you aim to wield any weapon other than the one that God has provided for you, you will find yourself wanting. There is no means of conquest in this nation, in this world, aside from wielding the weapon of the word of God. It pierces the heart. It splits bone and marrow and soul and spirit. It is the only weapon of war that the saints of God have been given. The word of God empowered by the spirit of God going out to see the elect of God saved. This is what we are called to. This is what Jonah is doing. He is wielding this weapon of war against this nation and God flips it on its head. What else could have conquered Nineveh? What else could have gone out that could have in just a day brought life? They believed God and only in their belief do we see that they begin to bear fruit keeping with repentance. The word of God goes out, and friends, the word of God always accomplishes its purpose. And in this particular moment, God's purpose, though the message seems to have been of judgment, his purpose was mercy. That as he goes forth making this proclamation, isn't it so interesting that as he proclaims judgment, God exercises mercy. What a kindness to us. What a kindness to Nineveh. How is it that they saw that repentance could even be had? How is it that they saw that perhaps it is that the Lord that is bringing about this judgment might relent? Oh, that the Spirit of God did a work in them. That as the word went out, the Spirit accompanied it with power and brought them life and life in a way that we still do not understand in perfection. That when the Spirit gives life, it genuinely does do just that. It brings life, even in this proclamation of judgment what we find is the word of God stands sufficient for the task that God has given us. 
It, stands, it stood sufficient in the days of Jonah and brothers and sisters. It still stands sufficient. We are fools if we do anything but proclaim the word of the Lord. There is no weapon greater. And so we go forth even now in our day and time proclaiming, repent and believe the gospel because what is it that the written word does? It points us to the living word that as we pronounce judgment, unlike Jonah, we have the great and glorious opportunity to proclaim the mercies of God that are only found in Christ. When we preach a message of judgment, we must preach it as genuine judgment. But friends, there is balm for the soul. And that balm is Christ in him crucified. That as the message of judgment goes out, we must heartily say, believe the gospel. Cast yourself on Christ and you will indeed be saved. So what is it, what was God's intent as Jonah walked through the nation of Nineveh proclaiming judgment? Well, a couple of things I want us to see as this word goes out, because it's a really interesting environment that we find ourselves in as we examine Nineveh. Because God sends this message of judgment, and as he sends this message of judgment, it makes its way throughout all the people and ultimately reaching the king. And we see this really zoom-in moment on the king. What happens when he hears this? Well, verse 6 says this. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The first thing that we see here is sorrow. I mean, deep sorrow, grief. Just consider what we're looking at here. The king of Nineveh, the king would have been clothed in the most beautiful of garments. He is sitting on his throne. What a a demonstration of sovereignty, even as he is sitting on his throne. And what immediately does he do as he hears this pronouncement of judgment? He realizes that he has no place to stand before this God. And immediately what he does is cast off his royal robes, dethrone himself and sit in sackcloth and ashes. He is overcome with grief overcome with it because the pronouncement is just judgment. And it's reasonable, isn't it, that he only is met with grief because in verse 5 we see that the people believe the Lord and here we see in verse 6 that the king of Nineveh believed the word of the Lord. Friends, believing the word of the Lord in this particular moment is believing that he is going to crush your nation in 40 days. It doesn't matter whether you believe or not. That is a fearful judgment. But if you believe it, if you believe the proclamation that it's made its way into your throne room, then you have 40 days until every wicked soul in Nineveh, including yourself, is destroyed. Is there any other response other than sorrow that could be had? When the judgment of God comes, it is reasonable that amidst the judgment of God, when we see our our wickedness and God's right to crush us amidst it, what naturally is produced? Sorrow. And sorrow is right. And the issue really is, I mean, you just consider all of the things that are unfolding before this king, even in this moment. Not only does he believe the word of the Lord, but is what's, what's perhaps most tragic is in the proclamation, in understanding that the judgment of God is coming, he does not genuinely know the Lord who sent it. You know, as we read through the scriptures and as it pierces us, the great comfort that we have in understanding and knowing the God of the scriptures is that though he wounds, he wounds that he might bind up. We know that his judgment comes. We can see judgment in light of grace and mercy. But this king certainly did not have that as of yet. He had no revelation that this God is indeed merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I would would remind you that this is the same reason Jonah refused to come because he knew the God that he was serving. He said, I'm not going there. I know who you are, but this king did not. It is perfectly reasonable that he is filled with sorrow upon sorrow. And what's seemingly important is that not only does he hear this proclamation, it seems as though he knows his guilt. 
I mean, just going a bit further down in verse, in verse uh, 8, it says this, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Isn't it interesting that he did not have the law of God, but it was a law unto himself because God has written the law on the hearts of men. And certainly he has added it that we might see our trespass and see our wickedness and see how desperately we are in need of him and how right he is to judge us. But even in this moment, this king knew I am evil and I am wicked and I do deserve the wrath of God on me. It is no surprise that this message of judgment came. And so he is filled with sorrow. But friends, can I just say, sorrow is not by necessity repentance. Sorrow is not by necessity godly. I want you to notice what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says. It says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a genuine grief that is a grief of idolatry, that is a grief of sorrow. Perhaps it is that you know you will be under the judgment of God, but there is a distinct grief that is brought about by the Spirit of God that always, and hear me when I say this, always leads to repentance. If you find yourself burdened and grief-stricken, the only reasonable response is to repent before God and cast yourself onto Him. And then and only then do we see, according to 2 Corinthians 7.10, that that repentance will ultimately lead to salvation, and not only salvation, but salvation without regret. The sorrow that he feels is perfectly reasonable. But the question has to be, is it genuine? Is it a real and honest repentance? Or is it simply a moment of sorrow because you know judgment is coming upon you? Well, we'll see the answer to that in the next section. Jonah chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says this, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decrees of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And you would think, even in that statement, even in looking at this concept, that they are going to cast themselves as low as they possibly can. They're going to sit in sackcloth and ashes. We look at this story and we think, see how they repent? Sackcloth and ashes. Friends, repentance in sackcloth and ashes, pagans did that. Pagans did that. It is not uncommon for someone to sit in sackcloth and ashes and be filled with sorrow and grief. People did that when their loved ones passed away. It is not by necessity a sign of repentance. So how can we have any confidence? I mean, some, somewhat, we look at this and immediately think, oh, I see them cast low. Look, they see it, they're sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It seems that they're, uh, they're, they're saying, yes, we are guilty before God. Yes, we deserve to be crushed under his wrath. But it is not in the sitting of sackcloth and ashes that we can determine whether they're genuine is repentance because, friends, if men are anything, they're showmen. We're glad to show our sorrow, even if it not be genuine. We're glad to pretend that we have repented. If I had a dollar for every soul that walked up to me and said, I have repented of my trespasses and sins only to see them walk out the door and never to return. Men can be showmen and they can be showmen for a small amount of time. But what is it that indicates that I think quite clearly that the Ninevites, this king and all of the people that have repented genuinely did repent? Well, the first thing is, I just want you to notice the language at the end of verse 8. It says, let everyone turn from his, I'm sorry, it says, uh, them, verse 8, words are hard. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. What God are we calling out to? 
Wouldn't it be most normative for a pagan culture to begin to call out on their idols to fight the God of the enemy nation? That would be what is most regular, but that is not at all what we see occur in this particular text. When we see Nineveh repent, what we see them do is cast off their idols and call out to the only one who they believe will actually be able to save. They know, and friends, every idolater knows that their idols are deaf, blind, and dumb. And they know this for truth. And so what is it that they do? They begin to mightily call out to God. They begin to cast themselves on him. And here is the greatest position of repentance that any soul can ever have. Call out mightily to him. Cast yourself on him. This is what genuine repentance looks like. It is an abandonment of hope in self and a confidence that if there be any salvation at all, it is found in him. For the salvation of man is frail, but the might of God knows no weakness whatsoever. And so you see him cast himself on to God. You see them remove, throw away all of their idolatry. But then you actually see going on a bit further. It says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Do you think this man, this king, thought himself evil and wicked before this pronouncement of judgment came? Perhaps in some depths of who he is, but that would have been deeply suppressed. And what we actually see is even in this moment, in this proclamation of judgment, there is a revelation of who he actually is. And Calvin argues that should we know ourselves, we must first know God. And even as this proclamation comes and he hears of the just God who is coming for him, he immediately knows self a bit better. He knows he is evil. He knows that he is wicked. And what he immediately does with that as he hears this pronouncement of judgment is repent. And look at the language. Turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. He, know, he, he knows he is caught with his violence. He knows that he is caught with his wickedness. He knows that the only means of hope is to cast himself on the one who perhaps will have mercy on him. He demands that we repent. But that word, repent, it's a word that is rather hijacked. I'll never forget when I was growing up, I remember often being told you to repent of your sin, which essentially meant me listing out all the sins and trespasses that I had committed throughout the day, which I could not remember anyway, for I was a great sinner. And thinking, I must go to him and say, Lord, forgive me for this sin. Burden upon burden upon burden upon burden upon burden. Even at the end of the day, when I would confess my sins, I knew that I had not confessed them all, that I perhaps would still be under the wrath because I must confess each and every one should I be saved. What's interesting is that's not what we see the king of Nineveh do. And what's perhaps more interesting is the question, does God accept our repentance and why should he? Have you ever considered, is repentance the means of our salvation? Is repentance, is it a work that we do so that God might find us acceptable before him? Is it so necessary that we are able to list every trespass, sin, and iniquity that we commit? Why is it that he accepts any repentance at all? I mean, genuinely, if we look at the story of Jonah, and even if all of these things transpire, even if Jonah goes and forecasts judgment, he says in 40 days, yet Nineveh will be overturned. He goes forth wielding the weapon that God has given him, ultimately his word. This word pierces the hearts of men. And it pierces them to such a degree that they believe God and naturally they repent. Why should he accept their repentance? Because should we place this in our context, should we place this even in a courtroom in our day and time? Perhaps it is that someone had committed great sin against you, trespass. Perhaps it is they had gone so far as to take a member of your family from you by murdering them. 
And you stand before this judge, and this judge hears the case of this man. And this man is genuinely, I mean genuinely repentant. Deep in his soul, he mourns his actions. He mourns the trespass that he has made, not only against the creator of that individual, but also his family. He is deeply sorrowful. And the judge looks at him and says, be free. What would we call that judge? We would call him unjust. We would call him wicked. The question then stands, how can God be just and the justifier? Why is it that he would accept your repentance? Is your repentance a work that you would add to the gospel? Certainly not. Why is it that you would accept? Why is it that this God who is just, we have seen this throughout the pages of scripture, this God who is just, he is righteous, he is holy, and he is the judge of all the earth, and he will do what is right. Why should he accept your repentance? Why should he relent of crushing Nineveh? as we'll see later on in the book of Nahum, upon whom their unceasing evil has gone against every nation. Why would God relent? Why would he accept our repentance? And friends, if our repentance was a repentance of pardon, then he would be evil. But it is not a repentance of pardon. It is a repentance of justification. Why is it that he would accept your repentance? It's because Jesus bought your repentance. Not only did he buy it to such a degree that it is his finished work and the promise that was made before the foundation of the world that those whom he knew would indeed believe and repent, but he made actual atonement that our repentance would be accepted before God because, friends, there must be payment for sin. I just want you to notice, because I I think there is a reasonable question that is asked by this particular king. He says in verse 9, Who knows? Who knows, maybe, maybe God will relent. Maybe as we repent, as we turn from him, who knows, maybe God will indeed repent. Friends, he has had no shadows to see. He has had no sacrificial system to look into and see what actually the just God of all the earth does with sin. As he forgives, as he shows grace upon grace. Even in Israel, they saw that there is one coming who will pay the debt that I owe. But he didn't have this. And so it's perfectly reasonable for him to say, who knows, maybe, maybe he will pass over. Maybe he will relent. But if the question is, on what basis would God receive their repentance? The answer is on the basis of Christ and him crucified. Romans chapter 3, this is not anything original. This is straight from the text. Romans 3, 21, how can God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? How can God, amidst this story of Nineveh demanding justly to be overturned, how is it that he can be just and the justifier? Romans 3, 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Where? Where were the sins of Nineveh laid? Where was every trespass, every act of violence, every act of hatred and idolatry? Where is it that these men who believed God, where was that paid for? Where was God just and the justifier? In Christ and in Christ alone. Your repentance is not birthed in you. It is birthed from God in you. And it is bought The reason that God would hear our repentance, the reason that we are able to turn and move a different direction is because our repentance is not rooted in some 
frail form of justice, but it's rooted in the justification of Christ. When he is the propitiation for our sin, God sees us in our wickedness, in our trespass, in all of our sin. And he says, on Christ it was laid. And he is the just and the justifier of the one only, only in the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Where was the sins of Nineveh laid? It was laid on the cross of Christ. Only there can we see the wrath of God absorbed. That word propitiation is so vitally important. It is a word rich with gospel. It is a satisfactory sacrifice. He passed over those sins, but rest assured, God passes over no sin forever. He is long-suffering indeed, but he passed over them just long enough for the fullness of time to come and Christ pay that debt in full. Finally, I think we do well to just consider the reality of this in our own life because, friends, I don't know about you, but there have been moments where I think, why should God accept my repentance? How many times have I been in this moment repenting of the same trespass, the same iniquity, the same sin? How many times have I stood right here? Why should he accept it one more time? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is found in 1 John. 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But notice this precious gospel language. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I want you to notice the all-encompassing nature of that statement. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Our repentance is most certainly bought by the blood of Christ. It is bought by the blood of Christ, and that is the only means that we have to not ask the question that the king of Nineveh does, who knows? Saints, if you have believed the gospel of Christ, we do not say who knows. We say with great certainty and boldness, we know. Why do we know? Because going on in 1 John, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe the gospel. The reason we can say with certainty is because we believe the gospel. We believe that our sin, trespass, and iniquity can genuinely be repented of because God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And so we come, and I think we say with great certainty, not only, can we, not only can we rest in this glorious gospel, but friends, how sweet it is that as we go forth to conquer, we go forth conquering with the word of God to wound people with the judgments that he has made, but to apply the sweet balm of Christ that says, should you repent, should you turn to Christ, the blood that he has offered is a propitiation. It is a satisfactory sacrifice. Your repentance will be accepted before God because Christ died in your stead. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning grateful that our repentance is not rooted in our own ability to turn ourselves about, but it's brought about by the all-sufficient word of God cutting. And Lord, how sweet it is that we could go forth as gentle conquerors, Lord, as those who bring the gospel, but sharp objects do not need to be swung hard. We simply bring them the good news. We command, repent and believe the gospel. And Lord, we believe that you will give life. We believe that those who come repenting, we can look at and say, your sins have been paid for. You genuinely have been brought into the family of God, that your repentance is accepted because of Christ's death. And so, Father, I ask you, 
First, give us boldness in our proclamation. May we rest in the authority and the power of the word of God that goes out, that it will accomplish its purpose. And Lord, when its purpose is to wound, Lord, we know that you wound that you might bind up. So may we rejoice even in those moments. But Lord, I ask you, would you help us first and foremost that at every time we stand and we long to repent of our evil, of our violence, may we always look to Jesus knowing that he bought our repentance, that it's by your kindness that you have led us there. So Father, may we be faithful. May we be faithful as we go to wield the only weapon that you have given us. Lord, when we see believers repent, when we, when we see sinners repent and believe the gospel, may we give them the confidence of the gospel. Lord, for we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.